Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God who has given us your revealed word. Thus, you are the God who is in command over what its truth is, the accuracy of it. And we know with our stained souls, we know with the distractions all around us, we know that our own experiences bias us against understanding the truth. And thus, we ask that your spirit do the work in our hearts to clearly communicate through me, to clearly allow the ears to hear that we might allow the work of the Spirit and conviction of our hearts to sanctify our hearts, to change us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, to carry his name well into this world, that it would be used as a testimony to the truth of our God, the beauty of our God, the majesty of our God, for your glory and the good of those that receive and accept the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning's message is entitled, Deliverance Out of Dilemma for Sabbath Worship. We're beginning the fourth commandment, which is dealing with the Sabbath. And so I wanted to present some questions to you to see where you stand I prayed a minute ago, and I indicated in the prayer that our experiences of our, of our past affect the way we receive or understand things, or how we, how we make sense of things. And it's not the only thing that helps us make sense, but it is part of how we make sense of the world around us. So let me ask this question. Does your understanding of the Sabbath start with the covenant God made with Israel? Does your understanding start with the Sinai, what we're going through here in Exodus uh, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Let me ask you a second question. Have you been told in the past that Jesus has provided our Sabbath rest so Christians no longer need to adhere to the Fourth Commandment directive, which states, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? The reason I ask these two questions is because it's what a lot of mainstream evangelical teaching consists of. It's what I was exposed to as a young Christian. It confused me. I didn't understand how you could have the moral law and yet have everyone hold to nine out of the Ten Commandments, and this one gets dropped off. How does this one get removed from this unit of moral law? Well. Today we'll go back to the beginning. We're actually going to go to the creation account. One of the reasons I had Jamie read just specifically this particular commandment out of the 
uh, Exodus 20 instead of the run up into the fourth commandment was because we need to spend some time in creation in order to gain a proper understanding of the fourth commandment. And I'm hoping some of you are going, really? It starts there? I, I've never been taught that. Or I, you're going to have to do some serious convincing to show me that it actually has anything to do with creation. And I, I welcome the challenge because I've walked these, this journey um, if you've asked these questions before. So this week we're dealing with the foundation of the Sabbath in the creation account. But this is going to be, unlike the other uh, uh, Ten Commandments, this is going to be a three-part, three weeks in a row worth of studying the Sabbath. And I hope that actually excites you and it doesn't go, oh my goodness, can we move on? Because I hope that you see here, wow, there's something here to this. In fact, there's, it really is founded in it. And then next week we'll look at how, at, uh, how the seven-day seven cycle and our adherence to that commandment was part of a bigger picture of our relationship with God. There's something more. It's not just a seven-day cycle and at the end of it, there's a Sabbath. There's something more, and it's the more we're going to talk about next week. And then the final week is, okay, now that we see the foundation, now we know what is in the future for us, what about now? How are we to observe and honor this in light of what we see in the fourth commandment has some cultural context given to it? How do we make sure that we take the, cult, the, the principles without the cultural context being necessarily one for one brought in here. Does that mean if any of us collect sticks on the Sabbath, we're going to get zapped by God and we're going to die? No, there's cultural context there. So we need to understand what is it that is being conveyed there. So as you look at your, bull, or your yeah, look at the bulletin and you'll see the sermon outline on the back. I want to show you a couple things. First off, um, there is a reference that there is a uh, an insert, and hopefully you saw this insert. Um, I'm a very visual learner. In fact, sometimes if you can't make me understand something, get out a pencil and draw it for me. If you can draw it, if you can put it in a table, if you can show it on a map, sometimes points connect better with me that way. So I went ahead and I, I, I grabbed this table. Um, it's not a table that I uh, authored. It's uh, from jo Johann Gottfried von Herder. Um, if I've said it right. And you'll, the, the blue font in that uh, table is actually me adding to some explanation so you could take this with it and make sense of it if you forgot what I shared with you today. So there's some added understanding here. But there's also, as your eyes shift back to the bulletin, you see that there is underneath there, there's a little bit of a table uh, there or a, a graph, if you will, whatever have you that I wanted to show you how this, this works out. So there's going to be a very visual time th that today, um, pointing out what God has done here. And I hope you, again, you walk away with some understanding of it. Please see me after the sermon if you're like, Nick, you lost me on this one. I'd love to make sure that I grab you back and, and explain something that maybe I misstated while going through this. But uh, notice on the, uh, the sermon outline, there's a takeaway. And the takeaway is this. Your weekly dilemmas present an opportunity to seek the presence of God and experience a portion, maybe a slice of 
the now, not yet, Sabbath rest. You can taste it. You can whet your appetite for what comes on Sunday, as we now observe it, or on what we call, correctly, more correctly, the Lord's Day every week. But there's also a bit of a slice of that for the not yet as well. When we do, when we, when we do what we're called to do as God's people, when we face the, the dilemmas that we will face. I want to give you this as a challenge to think this through. Did Adam and Eve, before the fall, they are sinless, did they or would they have ever faced a dilemma of what to do without it being a sin, a choice of sin? Would they ever have faced a dilemma that wasn't based on sin versus good or sin versus righteousness? No, just a dilemma of the best thing to do in any given situation. What do I do? I've got these two options. What's the best option? I don't know. What's, this is my dilemma. Do you think they possibly would have dealt with dilemmas in their pre-fall state? And I will suggest to you the answer to that is yes, they would. Think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not to take of that. When they weren't sure of what to do, when they needed more to be revealed to them, they were to seek God and not bring it upon themselves to decide. That's where they failed in the garden because the, the Satan, the serpent, tricked them into believing they could be like God, not needing to go to God. They would be the ones over the authority in determining what is good or evil. In this case, they, they in the garden should have understood and would have met dilemma and gone to God. So with that, let's take a look at the first bullet point there, deliverance out of dilemma for Sabbath rest. And I'm going to walk you through this this table, if you will. You'll notice at the top it says, a dilemma described, and then there's an arrow, and that, which means then we move from that in the creation account to deliverance, and then there's another arrow, and we're going to move, move to, and you can tell that the, the author of this document must have been Baptist, because he liked hitting the Ds. I didn't even know what denouement meant I had to look it up, and I, I, I like to make sure that everyone understands. Well, guess what? That basically means resolution, but it messed up his Ds. So he put, he put denouement in there, I believe. So from dilemma described to deliverance, and then denouement or resolution described. So let's take a look at this. Now, I'm gonna, on the left side of this table, you see summary of the prologue. That which leads up and gives an idea of what's to come. In Genesis 1.1, it states, in the beginning, and then it deals with, in bolded print I've got there, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what's going to happen in the creation account, and he gives that as a summary prologue. And this is Moses writing this through the inspiration of our God. Well, let's, before we get into the meat of this, work your way down on the left side and see in italics uh, letters again, you see the summary epilogue. That's in Genesis 2.1. And you will recognize this epilogue because you just heard the prologue and it aligns it with it. Thus were completed the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. So we see there's a summary of, oh, that's just what com was completed. What's unfortunate in our Bibles is that we don't get to 2.1 in chapter 1. In other words, remember, the chapters and the verses are not inspired. 
They were written by men to help give us understanding of, of themes that are occurring. Almost every theologian I've ever read agrees that the break should not have been where the break was given. It should have, the chapter one should have broke at Genesis 2.3 being the last uh, verse of chapter one. And then chapter four starting, or excuse me, chapter two starting with 2.4, or chapter two, verse four. And I, I think we're gonna see that. Oh yeah, that does make sense because what it does is it cuts off the Sabbath. We only have six days of creation if we do it all in, if we have chapter one divided up as it currently is in our Bibles. And so we, it helps to bring confusion to this thing, the Sabbath. It almost makes the Sabbath feel like, hey, yeah, that's, that's chapter two. I just, you know, chapter one's dealing with the creation account. No, all the way through 2.3 we see that. And really chapter two does uh, from a different angle. So let's continue on. So we understand um, that the, the creation account is Genesis 1-1 all the way through Genesis 2-3. Now let's go back up. Let's deal with the dilemma described. And I've got written there a threefold problem, hindering or even hostile to creation. It's interesting, some of the, the, uh, the theologians like to, they, they're not as comfortable using the word hostile because isn't everything God created good? Well, there's a little bit of a dilemma there. I'm not so worried about the word hostile. I think it gives a good picture of there's a, there's a problem here. So we look at this, and you move to the right there. And it says in Genesis 1.2a, and I want you to notice something about this. Genesis 1.2a, and then there's Genesis underneath it, 1.2b, and then Genesis 1.2c. The key is that if you understand that it's a three uh, fold or three-part dilemma, then now go down all the way to the denouement described, in other words, the resolution. Notice that at the end of this account, there's a three-fold resolution, and you see the literary symmetry that is going on here. And you, oh, Moses, now I have a better understanding of what you were doing by way of God's inspiration. This unit is, is, there's more being communicated when I look at this and divide it up by this literary fashion that you intended. In other words, the table for us is helpful because it helps do that for us. So look, let's look at the, the, the dilemma described. Here it is in Genesis 1.2a. It says, now the earth was formless and void. This is where the creation account starts. We've already got something there, and we're going to see what it is, but it's lacking. Creation isn't done, and in this state of creation, there's a problem. And the problem is, is it's formless and void. It lacked the order that life needs in order to be sustained. Left in this order, creation will not be able to sustain any life in it. We continue on in Genesis 1.2b, part two, or the next component of the threefold problem. And darkness, that's a tip off to us. We know that in the ancient Near East and in much of the Bible, darkness represents that which is, is problematic. There's something off. And darkness was upon the face, and he, this author writes, and I wanted to leave it here so I didn't mess with his chart, the primordia or primordial abyss. Your Bibles call it the deep. The deep is the picture of all you can see is dark water that has no bottom. 
And they're calling it primordial, meaning that it's in its original state, that's the idea of primordial. Because of the darkness referenced before that, it's more of an abyss than it just is as a neutral set of waters. It represents that water that is not capable of sustaining life. And if you can go one step further, it means the waters of death. There is no life in them. That's what the abyss conjures up in our mind correctly when we use that word. And that's why the author chose, rather than to use the deep, he uses primordial or primordia abyss. And uh, I've got written there next to it, the dark, chaotic, or unordered water represents a threat against the existence of life. So part number three here of the threefold problem in Genesis 1.2c. And the Spirit of God was hovering upon the face of the waters. The face is the, the surface of the waters. There's a problem. There's, there's inactivity. We can see here, we can imagine in our minds that the Holy Spirit is present, but there's no action being taken. And so we would logically, as part of the ancient Near East, draw the question, why? What is holding us back? We need the completion of life. And thus it moves us into deliverance. God in creating is delivering the, the creation itself out of its state of, of being unable to sustain life into a state that where life flourishes and it's specific life. And we'll see it, it's on a trajectory. Let's take a look at this. So you, you see that uh, I've got written underneath deliverance there in the blue bold. It says life becomes sustainable with days three and six creating a hermeneutic key. Well, that's your 25 cent. Uh, theologian the, uh, word there, hermeneutic. All that means is a system of understanding what's going on. That's the hermeneutic key. So when you look at day three and day six, it's not just giving you narrative information. It's also giving you information that this is the way, and if you understand these days, you will see what happens on these days played out in later verses in Scripture. So there's real significance. They're considered the climactic days in each of the categories. So let's take a look at these categories. Uh, you see the category of formless. Remember, it was talked about before. Um, it, that means it is without realms of existence and function. Interesting, in the ancient Near East, their concept of nothing wasn't nothing. I wish I had, here, I'll hold this up. It wasn't like, I got a book in my hand, and then I have nothing in my hand. Theirs was an unusual concept. Their concept was, you didn't know this was a book. If it doesn't have a function that correlates with its existence, it is nothing. It has no value. Isn't that fascinating that they have a different understanding of nothingness? So you can see that without purpose, there is this, what, what, we got nothing. So this is, so formless, uh, with, on the formless side of things, it is without realms of existence and, and, and function. So he, God is going to bring order by creating these realms, and then he's going to fill those realms. See the void it says there? He's going to fix that problem, that which is, doesn't have life in it. He's going to bring life into those realms. And so we live in an ordered creation that's on a trajectory of a specific purpose. We're going to get to what that purpose is. 
bear with us as we, or with me as I walk us through these days. So in day one there, it says light, and it lists the, the, the uh, um, scripture references there, uh, one, uh, chapter one, verses three and five. I want to suggest to you, I found this fascinating in studying for this. I've been studying for the preaching on this probably two years. And what I mean by that, I've gotten exposed through seminary to some of these truths. And then I'm reading the Sabbath and I'm, I'm realizing, wow, these are connected. The creation and this and, and the Sabbath are so connected. I didn't realize some of this stuff. So when you think of realms, if you think of a geographic realm, because light is the first realm, you would think geographically it's up there in the heavens. But there's also a conceptual or a concept in the realm is time. Remember, God is outside of time. When he creates, part of the creation of us is the creation of time. We are time-focused beings. God is not. God is outside of time. So what do you see? Look over in day four then, remember? So the realm is the realm of the heavens, or if you think of it conceptually, it's the creation of time. And then you see what is created. Oh, this makes so much more sense. Luminaries. What does he tell us these luminaries, these lights up in the sky? They don't know them from stars or planets. They're just luminaries. What do they, 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 they give off light, in other words? What is their function? Well, according to uh, uh, verses 14 to 19, they rule over intervals of time. You've got the greater and the lesser light, the sun and the moon. One rules the day, the greater, the lesser is the moon, the night. You've got the understanding of the stars rule the seasons and the years. They navigate their years. They have an understanding of what time it is by way of where the stars are. We know that. Still to this day, people use that. You'll see the mariners use that. And I'm not talking about some type of a sports team. I'm talking about the fishermen you will use that to get their bearings sometimes. They know what to expect. So it does make sense that these luminaries are that which rule, as he says specifically, rule over time. Well, let's continue on. Then you've got uh, the second day. You've got the creation of the sky and the water. And what happens is he says he takes the, the water, this deep abyss, and he separates it. Now you have water up here, which is what we know as the atmospheric rain and whatnot, but there's this area in the middle that becomes the sky or the atmosphere that we know. You know, when you look up in the sky, that, that which is here you can see. You, they thought that rain just came down out of the heavens. That was the ancient Near East understanding of it. We know it differently, but that's how they conceived of it. It's this, the idea then, you have sky and you have water. You have two new realms in day two. You have, then you have in day five, you have the birds of the air, which uh, is uh, referred to here as fowl, that will occupy the sky. And then you have the, the realm of water is going to be occupied by fish. And you're going, okay, this is making sense. I, I see the pattern. Let's continue on here. Then you get to day three. Day three, you'll notice I have it bolded. You have land, which is uh, uh, quickly, it's the same day, it's populated with vegetation, so it can support what he's going to create, and he's going to create the animals and mankind. So the vegetation will support that. There's the, there's the, the life that we see in there. But notice that day three is land is highlighted, 
And day six, you have mankind highlighted. Where, and this is where we got to get a little heady, and hopefully you guys will see, I have an aha moment. Where does he say the land comes from? He doesn't actually specifically say it like as, as if it's scientifically, but it says in, in the Hebrew that it appears. Well, it's not coming down from the sky. The water, uh, excuse me, the land appears up through the water. So we have land piercing the primordial abyss, that deep, dark water that was hostile to life. It, it uh, comes up through the water, and now you have land, and you have water all around it. Well, that's going to play a significance. There's a, a deliverance happening there. God is taking that which is hostile, the deep waters, and he's separating them in a form of, of allowing this, this land to de be delivered from the water and come up. Well, here's the connection in Hebrew here. Land, when it's referred to as the ground, and we're going to see that in chapter 2, is referred to Adama. Adama. Think of Adam with an A-H at the end of it. Interesting enough, mankind is Adam. From Adama comes Adam, mankind. Is, God is purposely linking that in a grammatical way that we would grasp. Remember, he even does it by way of narrative. Where is man? What is the substance God uses to create man? It's from the dust of Adama. So we see that connection to man. What will, and what happens in day three with the land, the ground coming and going up through this primordial death of water, we see this water parting and up comes through the land that will produce mankind. And mankind will ultimately produce deliverance. But it won't just be any mankind. It'll be one individual of mankind that will bring deliverance to creation as a, as a trajectory that always has been there. Some people, I was, you know, as a young Christian, I, got, I asked the question, well, why Jesus? Why, why, why didn't we all just come here and have a situation where we were made so we couldn't sin why must there be a savior? And is this like a plan B? You know, God did a, uh-oh. He, he didn't think this all the way through. No, we can see in the creation story that this concept of deliverance is there the whole way. And I'm going to show you more. Bear with me if this is your first exposure to it. You're going, yeah, I need a little bit more there. Okay. We'll, we'll continue to, to show this and bear this out. Well, let's look at the, the, the new mint or the, the uh, uh, described or the, the threefold resolution. Um, now we see in Genesis 2 a this is, this is what comes out of that resolution, if you will. So in, two, in Genesis 2.2a, and God completed on the seventh day his work, which he had finished, excuse me, which he had done. Some of your Bibles might say, and God, com uh, God finished. The, the concept is the same. So we have completed as being significant. 2.2b, and he rested. The word rest there is Sabbath, Sabbat. 
He, I'll, I'll use a little bit of play in this with the, the English. He sabbated. You wouldn't say that like that in Hebrew, but it's helpful for us to understand it. So God rested, or he had a day of rest. He demonstrated the first uh, Sabbath. He created the first Sabbath, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So we have completed, we have rested, and then we have something else occurring in 2.3, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, uh, it, it because on it he rested from all his work which God created and made. I'm going to suggest to you, it's easy to look at blessed and go, I'm really not sure what that word means in this context. And so I'll go with sanctified and I'll see them as synonyms. I'll see them as words that mean the kind of very similar stuff. It doesn't. If you don't understand what blessing means, then you will miss this. A, a blessing is that which is made a success because God is the agent that makes it a sex, uh, a success. So when God blesses something, it will be successful in carrying out the function he designed of it. That's why God said uh, that he blessed the day that, that dealt with the, the swarms of the fish and the fowl. And, and you see that you see in the oceans are filled, the skies are filled with birds. They were, we know by way of that he blessed that day that that's a given. He, te he blessed mankind and says uh, at the very end of chapter 1, he blesses uh, mankind. And what happens? Mankind is fruitful. And it's so fruitful that you can't number mankind with a, uh, by way of the, the, the sand of the sea or the seashore is the idea, the concept. Mankind is so plentiful. Well, when you get to here and you see that he blessed the Sabbath, what is it? What is he? There has to be a function tied to it in order for you to understand what he is making sure will be accomplished. Because that's what blessing means. I'm not going to give it to you just yet. I want you to hold on to the next part, what that is, that he's, what he's doing in the blessing there. But certainly sanctified has the idea of being set apart. You've got six days of creation. He's doing a specific work. And then you have one day that's completely different. It's a set-apart day that is blessed or guaranteed to function as he said it would function. Okay. Let's see this. I, I want to give you one idea that will hopefully help you. This was interesting to hear, hear this in the words of uh, one of the theologians. He says this about the totality of this creation account. Yahweh is the creator and the deliverer. He created the primordial abyss, the, the, the deep waters that had no light. There is no other God. He's the one that created that. He created the dilemma what, so that the outsiders, you and me, those who would be reading this would go, how is this going to get overcome? How are we going to resolve this problem? Yahweh is the creator and the deliverer. He comes with a resolution who frees the land from its deep, watery tomb. So hear that, that idea of abyss, that idea of death, unable to sustain life? He sees it as a deep, watery tomb and causes the waters of chaos, those that have not been under the control of God yet. God hasn't ordered the deep so that it allows the water, excuse me, allows the dry land to come up. 
so that man can be created, have a realm, and thus he would create him even from the land, the dust of the ground. Let me, let me start again. Yahweh is the creator and the deliverer who frees the land from its deep watering tomb and causes the waters of chaos to be transformed into a watery womb. Mamas out there, you can appreciate the concept of womb. No longer a tomb. What an incredible deliverance from death to life. You can see the change of the water when God says, I am the creator over you. I will make you so that you do what I want you to do and deliver us out of this situation of death, to be transformed into a watery womb out of which the land emerges. Okay, let's real quick um, summarize what we looked at in this first bullet point, and then we'll move on to the second. And the second is much, there's, there's, it flows more easily and it doesn't require as much explanation. First, let's deal with the, uh, the denouement the, the threefold resolution. First point there. What was incomplete, we saw that in the first part of that, creation itself in the seventh day is now complete. So the seventh day has significance. And I might add before I move on, do you see, look at your, your chart there, the, the table. Do you notice I bolded three things in, in the denouement? Um, it's the same thing each time. The seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day. In all three verses, there's a reference to seventh day. In the Hebrew language, when God uses three uses of something, it means greatest emphasis possible, or at least a greater emphasis. It's saying, big deal, you need to grasp something more than just reading this in a narrative and saying, oh, seventh day, factual, factual statement. No, no, theological statement is what we should be seeing when we see something threefold in its close context of God's writing in Scripture. We have it just one after another. One sentence, it's used. Next sentence, it's used. Next sentence. So something very important theologically is happening here, and it's communicated by way of the triple use of the word seventh day. And the Hebrews would get it because they know how their language works. So now we've talked about what was incomplete, and creation itself was now complete. Then you work to point number two there, which deals with the work. While work was necessary to complete the task of creation, now resting or ceasing from that particular kind of work is in focus. That's the focus of the Sabbath. We're not doing that work anymore. It's completed. We're done. We're resting. God doesn't tire. He doesn't need to rest. He never exerts energy and needs rest. He is all-powerful. So he's not, he didn't take a break because he was tired. He's doing something theologically here. And then we see the third point there. The seventh day, which is grouped with the seven-day week cycle, he created that cycle through creation, is set apart and given by blessing from God the guarantee of success in accomplishing what God designed that day for. Wow. All of creation is on a trajectory to day seven. All of, day, all of day one through six is for a purpose that relates to day seven. What is going on as it relates to mankind? They are the image. We are the image bearers of God. We are the, the, the height of his creation. We are the ones that were called to rule and have dominion over creation. apart and bless it and guarantee a function. Or I should ask, what is that function? 
So let's look at bullet point two. Through deliverance to the presence of God for Sabbath. That is a pattern in Scripture. Through deliverance to the presence of God for Sabbath worship. Worship is the purpose of mankind, to engage God in a relationship where mankind relates to God as the creator and as the deliverer that made it possible for, the, for God to have, or for them, I should say, us to have a relationship with God. There's no other ancient Near East culture that has a, a relationship of this magnitude with their God. Their gods are here, and they are way down there. And I don't mean in essence, I mean in a relationship. The relationship is one that is dysfunctional. Our God wants a relationship of intimacy, of beautiful functional uh, uh, interaction. So let's take a look at this and then see how this plays out. Notice the line underneath this on the, on the bulletin outline. It says, through the water of deliverance is one category. And then you've got the arrow to the mountain. And the mountain represents the presence of God. We're going to talk about that in greater detail in, a, in chapter 20. We're going to see this played out. The mountain. Mountains, and I'll just give you this much as a little taste of the of whet your appetite. Mountains represent the place where you go, where earthlings go to meet God. You go to the top of the mountain to get as close as you can to the heavenly being of God. Mountains represent God's presence. They are God's temple. And we'll talk more about that in, in a later sermon. So you have... Uh, through the waters of deliverance, to the mountain, or to God's presence, and for what purpose? For worship. That's the pattern established in creation. And let's see that. Remember, I told you that there is a hermeneutic. There is a something going on in days three and six that helps us see a pattern that's going to be in greater detail, because we only have the kernel of detail. We have very little information in days three and six, and you might go, I don't see it. But when you look at the, what happened in history, you go back and you go, oh, I do now see it. So let's look in history. Look at your chart there. Creation. So we saw that through the waters of chaos, the, the deep, the earth comes up out of it. Out of, and then the earth itself provides the sustenance, the substance, I should say, that God is going to use the dust of the ground to create human beings. And, he, and he, he breathes into the human being's life. But what we are, our organic nature, comes from the ground itself, from land. So through the waters of, of chaos, he brings this land up and out, delivers it from its, its tomb, so that what can be birthed from this land are his image bearers. And you go, oh. So in one sense, we, we talked about it being a tomb and then it became, the waters almost acted like a, a womb, allowing this land up and out of it. And so we see the deliverance of the evil to the good in the waters. He is the God who creates, and he is the God, therefore, and the only person. There is no other false god, false god meaning an angelic being that has greater powers than you or I and wants to be worshipped because they have fallen away from the throne of God and want to be worshipped like their God, they saw their God worshipped. 
And so they want human beings to worship them. Those fallen gods have nothing on God because they were created beings. God is the only one that can take which, that which is lacking in sustaining life. That lacking, or I should say created in such a way that it almost looks death-like and bring it to a place of deliverance. It's beautiful. It produces life. And what does God do? He creates the man and he places the man in the garden. Well, we know from Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, he writes and he tells us that the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. So what do we see here? We see through the waters of chaos, we see creation, and the, the height of creation is mankind taken to Eden by God, created from the land, put in the garden to God. For what purpose? To worship their creator, their deliverer. And then we see this carried out. It says Noah's, it might be helpful to say Noah's family um, because it's more than just Noah. You see that by Genesis 6, the world is in a state of evil and violence, so corrupt that God says, I'm doing away with this evil because everything that comes from man's heart is wickedness and it produces this evil. And so everyone except for Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives is wiped off the face of the water excuse me, the face of the land, by the water. The waters of chaos are used, excuse me, the, the waters are used as a form of judgment. Righteous anger, therefore, wrath against evil. And they, God wipes out evil. And in, the, in this ark are those that are safe from the water. The water is used as a, as a beautiful picture of deliverance the water allows the boat to float. The same water that killed the others uses that, that is now made for good so that boat can float. And that boat uh, ends up on Mount Ararat. It could have landed in a valley, a flat spot. You think it's coincidental? It landed on the top of a mountain? You think that, uh, excuse me, Noah wouldn't know what to do? Mountaintop. Mountaintop is where everyone in the ancient Near East recognizes the presence of their God on mountaintops. So what does Noah do as soon as he gets off the boat? He builds an altar and worships his God. We've got more of the picture coming. We see the worship taking place. Then you get to Moses. Pharaoh declares that the waters of the Nile are the waters of death. All Israelites' babies are to die. All the boys are to die by way of being thrown into the Nile. Pharaoh, the one who wears the, the serpent's figurine on his official royal headwear, he plays the role of God and determines what's evil, and he says, the Nile will be my machine to kill the male children. And God says, no, water will be used for deliverance. And little Moses is left in this miniature little ark he's put in, and he's allowed to go through the waters, through the reeds of the waters, and he ends up perfectly in the presence of Pharaoh's own daughter. Moses is a, is a microcosm of what the Israelite people will go through. Moses is unique in the history of Israel because Moses is the mediator. He's the one that God is going to raise up to stand between men he, he is the go-between between men and God. 
And we're going to see that connection to, to Christ himself. What does Moses do when he flees Egypt? He goes to Mount Horeb, which is later going to be referred to. It's the same mountain, Sinai. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountains. What does he do? On this mountain, he meets a burning bush that possesses in it the angel of the Lord, which is a reference to God himself. And what does he do? He talks, he communicates, he, he interacts with. Moses is unique in that way. And God tells him, take your sandals off because this is holy ground. This is a place of worship to your God. And so we see that through the waters of the death of the Nile, he is brought into the presence of God or to the mountain of God for worship. Then we see the Israelites. The Israelites, they pass through the waters of judgment upon Egypt. When he parts the Red Sea, when God parts it, it is a burial place. It is a place of judgment, of death for all the Egyptians, including Pharaoh himself. But those same waters, it says that the Israelites passed through on dry ground. The emphasis on dry ground is that there's no waters of death that they step on. They go through it as a form of deliverance and end up on the dry shoreline on the other side. And before the Egyptians can catch them, he, God takes those waters, the God who created the waters, he takes those waters that were waters of deliverance for the, his own people, and he uses them as waters of judgment. And he allows those waters to come back, and they crash upon the Egyptians, and they destroy them. They have met his judgment, his righteous judgment. What we look at and we see, lastly there, Jesus. Jesus, have you ever wondered? I'm going to give you this. As a young man, very curious, I was a police officer that loved investigative work. I tried to do my, my whole career, I kept trying to get back to investigations. When you get promoted or you go somewhere else, you have to leave investigations. I'm like, let me, I gotta figure out a way back there. I have a mind that God has given me that tries to figure out why. I must have driven my parents nuts. I think I'm that why kid that every parent just is like, oh. Well, I wanna know why, and I remember hearing one time that, because I'm asking, why does Jesus get baptized? What? He doesn't need repentance. When John the Baptist is preparing the way, making crooked the path to a path of straightness, what he's dealing with there more metaphorically is he's having the people recognize their own sin so that they repent and are baptized. They're, they're made ready, if you will, and their hearts, hearts are humbled by them, their own actions to hear the gospel that is coming. What does Jesus need to do that? Why? And the, the answer I would get over and over again was, well, he demonstrated the obedience that we need to follow in. Okay, I kind of see it, but that seems like a, you don't know and you just came up with that kind of answer. It doesn't sound like a real theological answer. And we see here, and just to be, give credit, there is an element of that. But we know from Romans 6 that Paul talks about those waters of Jesus' baptism as baptized into death. So when Jesus is baptized, Jesus is, is demonstrating metaphorically or symbolically that he is the one. We've been waiting for the one person in mankind that will bring about the deliverance of mankind itself because all along God knew that mankind would fail. 
He is the one, and he goes down into the water. He is immersed under the water. This is my plug that he's not sprinkled on. He goes under the water because the water represents death. Nobody can breathe under the water. He goes down into the water. He comes up out of that water. And that water is his demonstration that if I have control, I have power over death. I have the power of resurrection. I am the resurrection. I experience death and I come up out of the waters of death alive. I have been at res it's the picturing of the resurrection. When he goes to the mountain, to the presence of God, he goes not to be in the presence for, like we understand it, as a form of worship. He goes as the atoning one, the one who is brought in the presence of God to do the atoning death that we could not take part in because we are all stained with sin. His presence in God's, in, in God's presence, if you will, is different than ours. We need his presence, his work on that cross, on that mountain that's on that cross, to make it so that we can experience a Sabbath, a, a reconciled peace and worship with God. And he performs that. And then he is seated on the right hand of the Father that we might worship him. He goes to the mountain that we might exalt and worship the name of Jesus as ruler, as king, as redeemer, as deliverer, as savior for those who will share in the baptism of death. That's what we do when we go down into the baptismal waters. It does not save us. It represents our death to ourselves, our alignment, our sharing, our coming alongside the, what Jesus experienced. No more do we rely on ourselves and see ourselves as righteous. We recognize that only the righteousness of Jesus Christ is what we cling to that we might experience resurrection. Do not think you can work your way into heaven. You will fall short because all of your works are stained by the stain of sin, no matter how good you might put them in relativity to someone else's works. They all fall short because only one person was perfect and never had the stain of sin. Only one person died for our sins, and that was Christ Jesus. Let me leave you with an application. This is the so what. What do I do now, Nick, with what you said? Of course, if you don't know the Lord, you heard the message of the gospel, you need to trust in what he has done, Jesus Christ, in his death for our sins, and accept that he is the way to God, to a, a life of worship. But as it relates to our application, I'm going to refer back originally, and then I'm going to add to it, to our takeaway today. Your weekly dilemmas, if there were dilemmas, if, if Adam and Eve were going to face dilemmas, don't think in a sin-fallen world that you're not going to face dilemmas. And I'm not talking about sinful dilemmas, although there are many dilemmas that have choices. That one is righteous and one is sinful. I'm talking about dilemmas of what do I do in the midst of this challenge? I have this difficult situation. What is the right response as a, as a, as a family member of, the, of the, the family of God? Your weekly dilemmas present an opportunity to seek the presence of God, to go to the mountain of God, if you would, 
to go in prayer to our God, to be in the midst of his presence, you might say, and experience a portion of the now, not yet Sabbath rest. You see, when we rely and trust on God, we engage in a level of reconciled communication and a reconciled uh, status of presence before God where sin doesn't hinder us. It's a beautiful taste of Sabbath rest, the rest we should long for each and every week. If this, what you are going through right now, if this worship of God on Sunday is something that is tedious, something that you just want to get over and check a box and move on, I want to challenge you. There's a chance on the best side that you misunderstood it because you got told something off. You, you got, there's some misunderstanding based on potentially something some preacher told you before about this Sabbath day. Or maybe you're not a Christian at all. If you don't want to come here, if you don't long, and I'm trying to give you this picture because some of us will go, I've never been taught this longing. We should be longing. We should taste that element of the Sabbath, that Sabbath rest we have when we rest, and that is that we trust in what God gives us as the answer to the dilemma. We seek his presence, his wisdom, his intervention in our life. Him giving us the sustaining grace in the midst of the problem. We get some taste, and thus, when by the time Saturday comes, man, I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait to come into the presence of the people of God, to be fed the Word of God, to be spiritually sustained through worship, to even picture what we're about to do here with the taking of the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Jesus Christ to be stained, sustained spiritually, a picture of him feeding us. Sunday, I, I hate when I say Sunday. It's part of my past. The Lord's Day, referred to as the Christian Sabbath, that day is the day that we long to come corporately into the presence of our God and worship him. Grow in that understanding. Know that if you trust in God, he will deliver you through this week's God-ordained dilemmas with the goal of you experiencing a deepening intimacy of Sabbath worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for making these truths apparent. Father, you're an amazing God. Sometimes it's hard to see these truths. We're not taught how to, to look at, at these from a literary sense, to see what, you're, what the writers, the inspired writers are doing, and yet you so graciously give us men that are smarter than us, that can see these things, that have, have command over the language, that have spent their lives in it, that see these things and point them out to us because of what you're doing in their hearts and their desire to seek out the truth. And we thank you. We can see these things, and we, they become clearer. And we have an understanding that our Sabbath is not, st the starting point is not Sinai. The starting point is creation. And thus, we celebrate the Sabbath today. It didn't get abrogated. It, didn't be, it wasn't done away with. It's part of the moral law, all ten of the commandments being of a single unit. We thank you, Father, for this truth. We now have a greater appreciation of what Sunday looks like and how the rest of the week 
creates in us a, a burning desire to come to Sunday because the dilemmas we face in our week are many. Oh, but so are the opportunities to taste just that bit, that little slice of Sabbath rest, of Sabbath worship of you as we trust in you. We thank you, Father. Remind us of that this week in the midst of the dilemma. Remind us of your goodness and remind us of what you intended in creation for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.